Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've paired a couple of friends who recently worked together on an incredible project, Ethan Hawke and Hamilton Lighthouser. Ethan Hawke, you surely know as the Academy Award-nominated actor in a million great films, from Reality Bites to Training Day to Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy to 2018's First Reformed. Hawke is also a writer and director, and the impetus for today's conversation is his six-part HBO Max documentary, The Last Movie Stars. The series tells the story of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, both their personal lives as a married couple and their professional lives as two monumental actors of their generation. Far from a typical documentary, The Last Movie Stars uses archival footage alongside dramatizations of interviews featuring current movie stars. It even gets a bit meta, with Hawk revealing some of his process during the series via Zoom calls with contemporaries. It's a fascinating way to tell this incredible story. Another way that Hawk brought this story into the present was with music from his old friend Hamilton Lighthouser, who's best known as the singer of The Walkman, and who's had a fruitful solo career since that band went on hiatus. As you'll hear in this chat, Hawk had the idea that Lighthouser would be great at soundtrack work ages ago, so when he started working on the last movie stars, Lighthouser immediately came to mind. There's a lot of Lighthouser in the doc, and one song that they cover in this chat quite a bit is called 1959, from an album that Lighthouser made with Vampire Weekend co-founder Rostam. Check out a little bit of that song right here. If you don't hear from me Elsewhere in the chat, Hawk and Lighthouser talk about their processes for this project. Hawk originally envisioned a two-hour feature, but quickly realized that he needed much more time to tell this huge story. They talk about Bob Dylan's influence, musical good, acting not so much, and the greatest soundtracks of all time. That and much more. Enjoy. Who's the host here? I, I called you. Well, then you start. Okay, so is this the first documentary you made? No, mysteriously, I made one other documentary years ago called Seymour and Introduction, which is about this 88-year-old piano maestro who, um, through a really weird set of circumstances, I I got to meet. A friend of mine was dying, and he was a good pianist, but he wanted to be better, and he wanted to give a recital before he died. And so he hired this really old, brilliant piano teacher to coach him and he gave a recital before he passed and it was incredibly beautiful and this old guy Seymour Bernstein I met him at this recital and I just thought he was so wise and profound in the way that he talked about music it was like he was a zen monk or something all the secrets of life seemed to be wrapped up in this guy and so I I kept, I tried to talk Alexander Shiva into doing a documentary about him. I tried to talk Richard Linkletter into doing a documentary about him, but nobody would do it. And finally, my wife was like, you should just do it. And I said, well, if you'll help me. So we made it, she produced it and I did it, but it was very small scale. When was this? Gosh, I don't know, six, seven years ago. I really think you'd like it, Am. 
I can't believe I haven't seen it. Why haven't I seen this? Well, because you, you're not a faithful student of all my work. You need to see everything <laughs> no, I do. No. I need to pay more attention. So I think when Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's kids were looking for a documentarian, they had this idea, well, are there any actors who've made a documentary? And I think they Googled me or, you know, actors who make a documentary. And my name came up and the youngest one was like, wait, I know him because we went to the same high school. I actually just saw them there as part of an alumni weekend, actually fundraising or something. Right. That's where I first saw Paul and Joanne. But that's how I came to direct this one. Had you ever scored a documentary before? Oh, God, no. The closest I've come is a lot of podcasting, which actually has been sort of fun to do. And that's more like made to, or you were very generous in giving me a lot of freedom in uh, coming up with the stuff. But with the podcasting, usually they give you a lot more guidance, which I actually also find fun because my entire life has no structure or rules or I have no boss. So when I have somebody saying we need us, we need something sadder here or we need something happy, it's kind of fun to just do make something. I saw you play live once at the Carlisle show, not this last time, but the, the first time I saw you and I I was so blown away and you did a Randy Newman cover when I was there. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is a sibling of Randy Newman. I mean, I always love that Walkman song, Louisiana, you know? Yeah, 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 that's one of my favorites. That, that's like a sibling of a Randy Newman song to me, I, not just because of the state's name, you know, like. Right, like, right, right. What about the feel of the song and the melody and the passion with which you sing? And I was like, this guy should score movies. And the next time I have a movie, I'm going to ask him to do it. And, you know, it, what's actually strange is how it came to pass. You and I have never talked about this. Do you remember when I was first cutting together the opening, I wanted to do it to what's that I remember song? you had 1959. You called me. I was in town. I was out of town for the quarantine. Then I was there visiting with Sandra and Emily. We had some night or something, maybe. And then and then you invited me over the next morning and we went in and watched the whole because opening. There's so many false starts to a documentary. I cut together this huge sequence all of which to 1959, I kind of felt like I was owed you an apology because I'd, <laughs> I'd cut together. It was, remember, it was like 11 minutes long. It was so good, it. too. It was great. I thought it was incredible, too. But what I realized... I was like, holy shit, I want to be a part of this. I, but that opening, it was one of those strange things about storytelling. Is the, It was too good. It you By the time it was over... You, you knew the entire story, yeah. The idea that I was going to start the documentary with an overture. Right. Remember that scene in Up, that animated movie, where you kind of see the character's whole life? I was like, right. I want to cut an Up sequence to Hamilton's 1959. And I did it, and I loved it. But I forgive the expression, I cock-blocked the whole movie. Right, yeah. So I had, I had to get rid of it. But when I started talking to you that day, I was like, shit, you would be great for this. And I got to tell you, I've never had an easier collaboration in my whole life. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, I wonder, because it was so fun for me to do, but I, I, I wonder if, um, if I wasn't good friends with the director and I couldn't just text him every ungodly hour if it would be a very different uh ball game because like sometimes those like producers and music supervisors and stuff would call me like two weeks later and tell me we had to change something and i realized it was something that you and i discussed changing two weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> that happened like that happened like 25 times i would say to somebody yeah i'm gonna change that and they'd make a note to call you but they didn't know that i just texted you and we were already working on it <laughs> yeah one of the things i try to do as a director 
is give other people a chance for their creativity. It's the most fun part of the job is not trying to control people, but trying to empower them. You know, I did it with Barry, the editor. Barry's amazing. I would tell him what I wanted it to be and what it was supposed to achieve and the feeling and the mood I, I wanted and the ideas I wanted to express. And so I wanted to give you a chance to play too. And I know I could have been, I could have given you more clear direction, but your own. No, it was like a dream. I was, I, I thought, it, I found it so fun. I just, I, and I would love to do the thing again, but I, I would wonder if there could be a very, very different way of how it would go. I would imagine that's probably how most projects are. And I think if we weren't friends, if you were somebody who'd just been hired, you would have gotten really frustrated with me because I changed my mind so much. Remember, I asked you to record a 17-minute piece of my ode to Joanne I asked you for? Was it? I didn't, was it 17? Wow. Yeah, and you recorded the shit out of it, and it was amazing. But then I realized, oh, I, it, the movie worked better when I intercut more between Paul and Joanne, you know, like a 17-minute ode to Joanne. Did we use ode to Joanne? I can't remember. Yeah. I we used the slow Georgia Joanne. I remember that. That's actually one of my favorite ones. I think when you do score well, like you did, strangely, it's kind of like if you, I believe this anyway, if you're acting well, People just think it's easy. And when you do a score really well, people don't really notice it because it seems so effortless. And one of the biggest challenges you had was, remember, at first I wanted to use all the original scores to the old movies. Right. Because I thought that would be like your voice. And then every time we were in the world of this movie or that movie, Butch and Sundance, whatever it is. Which I love that idea. The idea was cool. But it made the movie too herky-jerky, and I just started needing more and more music from you as we went on. And I think if somebody else might have gotten incredibly irritated with me. <laughs> I could have done more, man. I was, like, just hitting my stride by the end, I felt. If it's 20 years from now and you think about this, what aspect of it will you remember? The most fun part for me was actually when I was on that tour and I didn't um, have my whole complicated recording studio set up, and I was just in my hotel room every night, and I had absolutely no idea yet because it was really early on of what the music was going to sound like and all i had is my nylon guitar and my foot to stomp and my and clapping and like tapping the guitar for the drums and coming up with all those ones that ended up in the second episode all of those sort of classical uh waltzes and and like fugues and stuff that was like the moment where i thought oh i think i gotta this is appropriate to the to what i'm watching on the it makes sense there's a connection and I felt like, actually, I felt like the 1959 thing that you showed me originally made a lot. I, I understood when you, it was a perfect match. It was, it was great. And I'm not just, you know, I'm a little bit biased, but, but it, it, I thought that it had that perfect haunting classic American sound, but updated with a modern sound. And, and uh, so when I, when I had that classical guitar sound that sort of reminded me of HUD and Sundance Kid and all that kind of like Western, but then it also worked really well when they were in Connecticut and stuff. One of the things that was exciting to me is finding out on the, well, there's several questions I have for you in this question, which is that I used to have to show you cuts of this well before it was done, which would make me incredibly nervous because I knew it wasn't that good yet, but I needed music to be able to make it fly. Right. Yeah. It's like a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but the problem with that then is I have to ask you to redo the music once I get the cut better. I was so worried that that was going to come down to some back and forth thing that I didn't under. And, and there was somebody I talked to at the beginning who was warning me that this is how it balloons or something like that. But, but we, I, 
I feel like we didn't, there weren't that many times where something struck out and then it had to be redone. I mean, it did happen a few times, but it was, I felt like it was a pretty smooth process, but it is funny that you tell me because I, I do remember right at the beginning when I was over at your house and we were watching some of those cuts at the beginning, the like episode one, like was really cool looking and it had a couple of my tracks and then a lot of temp music and stuff, but there was like no story. yet. It was like, what? You like didn't, you're like, this is awesome. But like, what is it? You hadn't gotten to the point where it was like, okay, this is the story of two solid people working in an incredibly public environment and being able to stay good people and stay together for 50 years. And that was like that simple version of the story hadn't quite developed yet. And it was like, a, I mean, I remember it was like a funny moment thing. Like, what, what is it? You were like, you're like, what is this story? Then I remember you saying that is going to be the theme of it. And from that moment forward, I understood, I think you understood, and we all understood that that's what the story was going to tell. It's kind of like you've got to just get a bunch of food on the table right. to figure out how to serve it and, and in what order. And one of the breakthroughs for me on it was that song of yours a thousand times. And the idea occurred to me that I should end episode one with a thousand times because there's something so deeply romantic about that song, um, the longing in it. And once we got the story right, where you realize that they were madly in love and he was trapped in a, in a marriage, make miserable and making both of them miserable in the freedom that the, I thought we could achieve at the end of the episode where you know, he's had this dream a thousand times that he could be with this woman. And now we're watching them get together. And, you know, here we are at the end of episode one and they just got married. They had a 50 year marriage. So I kind of love that as a storyteller. It's like, yeah, I just told you an hour's story. And that's the prologue. You don't even get the cool hand Luke till episode three or something. Yeah, exactly. But that gave me another idea. This whole movie is like a giant collage. I'm collaging home movies with feature films, with interviews from 25 years ago, with Zoom calls from today. And your music started to be the only thing that held the collage together. The only thing that was continuous. So when I started realizing once we did a thousand times, the end of episode one, needed to end every episode with one of your songs. And we just slowly found which ones spoke each moment. I think your manager thought I was trying to screw you. <laughs> really? <laughs> nah. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. 
Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. So when you um, when you started this, did you have any idea how much work it was going to end up being? Because it seemed to me from an outsider that you worked on it for like four, like three years or more. Yeah, I um, if I knew how much work it was going to be, I would have never said yes. I thought it would be more like the first one I did, Seymour and Introduction, where I was like, yeah, I'll make a little 90 minute thing. I'm, I'm sure this will be cool and I bet it'll be romantic. But as I started doing it, I realized that if I did that, it was just going to be a puff piece. You know, it was like going to be an Entertainment Tonight special that right. you that you saw in 1986 or something. You, you know, that there wasn't going to be any insight to it. or And that was what was revelatory about them was their life in its totality. You know, it, it's not right, one right. moment that makes them interesting. It's the accumulation of events that start to feel I mean, they have what we all long for, a lifelong love affair, you know, and and meaningful substantive work and contributing as a citizen, you know, to the social problems of their day. They like showed up as human beings. And I realized, okay, it's got to be about all that. And then I realized I had to make it (laughs) six parts. When you started, was it going to be a series or was it going to be a movie? It was going to be one feature. I sent a five-hour cut of the movie to Richard Linkletter, and I said, which three hours do I cut out of this? You know, like, I don't know what to do. And he said, you're thinking wrong. What you need to do is you need to make it longer and divide it into chapters. Like, and, and that's when I started discovering the story. Right. Here's a question for you. Did you ever, like, when you were falling in love with music, did you ever think about scores? Did you ever daydream about doing scores to movies? Oh, of course. Well, obviously, when you're little, like something like Star Wars or something jumps out at you. But the first thing I really considered and took seriously is uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which I would still say is probably my favorite score, mostly because it has such incredibly good songs that he, I mean, he's such a good songwriter that he was able to just sort of like toss those off as as soundtrack, you know, just like the 10th song on a soundtrack kind of stuff. I mean, he's got that, but then it, it's got that great consistency. He's got the same song six or seven times at different speeds, different lyrics. And I always thought that was such a cool way of having that main theme. It's so simple, but it's it's so great. The other one that always stuck out for me was um, McCabe and Ms. Miller because I was such a Leonard Cohen fan. And that's like, that's so different because it's sort of like a Leonard Cohen video. It's like, you know, that they just play his songs. And uh, that's cool. But that's, I guess that's what every musician's, it's like the opposite. Like he didn't have to, he just gave him the record. You know, he didn't, yeah. I, I'm sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is different than what I was, I was asking you to score something. Right. Well, I mean, I've always been singer in my band and I've always been like front. And it's, I mean, I have like dreams of standing in the back and playing the bass, but I don't have any other friends who are willing to stand up in the front and do that. You know, I love being in the background and I love trying to blend it in. And I love, I mean, you can make all this other music that you, wouldn't I'm not going to put it out as a Hamilton Lighthouse record because it's just not it's not going to be it's just not going to work as my own solo record but it was such a great outlet to do I wanted to do orchestrated stuff and I wanted to do I wanted to do background music and I wanted to do and I wanted to do stuff 
where I'm given an assignment to do it. I find that really fun. It's just like a, it's like a game. I loved when I, I gave you once, I was like, for the Cool Hand Luke opening, I was like, I need you to give me a Sun Studios recording. Like, oh, yeah. I was like, there was like a puff of smoke where I had just been standing. And I was just out the door halfway through it, like 10 minutes later. <laughs> that I love that one. Yeah. You gave me that about six minutes later. Yeah. It, yeah. No, I think that Knocking on Heaven's Door is... I would say definitely the greatest song ever written for a movie, bar none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough to beat. And that score, you know what's interesting about that? Do you know, you know, Christofferson got Dylan that gig. He did? Yeah, because Dylan was interested in acting a little bit, so... Right. He's kind of funny in that. Him in that movie reminds me of the end of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where he's the bellhop and he's always sort of like looking at the camera, you know, like <laughs> looking at the camera. He is the most self-conscious actor you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. He's yeah. so strange in that movie. <laughs> yeah, he is. It's crazy. His other one, have you ever seen the one from the 80s called... Um, Master Anonymous? No, no, no. It's all like Wild Hearts or something like that. He plays this like aging rocker and he's sort of like mentoring this young girl rocker. And he gets in a fight with this guy and he throws a punch at him with this sort of younger LA hotshot guy. It's cr a crazy movie. When I think about the great scores, Ry Cooter, Paris, Texas, there's a bunch of them that really stand out. Yeah. It's a hard medium to do because you both need to find a consistency of tone like a sound that lives in the same universe that the movie but it also has it has to lift the movie it can't be playing the same notes as the movie and it's a, it's a delicate balance it is definitely and like taking over too much can just be too you know self-aggrant like you, you really you're not the director and you're not the star so i mean in most circumstances some people you know it's another really really great uh movie soundtrack that gets slept on a lot is um the black stallion francis Ford coppola yeah i love that movie that movie the whole first half he's on the desert it's island incredible and it's all rhythm it's all like drums and shakers and like marimbas and stuff did coppola's dad do that i can't remember i read i just looked it up the other day and now i can't remember it's a brilliant the first hour of that movie is just a staggering it's incredible and then those shots of the ocean with the huge strings come in with the big swells and it's just like it's amazing filmmaking it really is would you ever want to do something like that compose something like that oh yeah um yeah i mean it would be so so fun working with those big studio i mean i don't know how many you know i did this stuff with me and my friends in my studio in my basement like to work on one of those big sound stages would just be like, I don't even know how many people do that. I don't know how that works. I don't know who who is even doing that anymore with a huge orchestra and all that. Spielberg, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting to me. It's so strange. You put some images together and you put music to it. And one time it falls utterly flat and you can't explain why. It's just dead. Yeah. I mean, and, and then other times the images start to pop and everything is speaking to itself and it, it starts to dance and be, yeah. I would do things like with the producers and stuff where they would give me notes and I wouldn't change anything, but the music, like, cause that we took out some temp score and put in your music. Right. And I would get these emails saying, great job. It makes a huge difference. But it's one of those strange parts of a, puzzle where i really think it's mysterious when you do it right here i've watched black stallion a thousand times in that first hour that movie blows me away and i've never even thought of the score yeah it's so good it works so effortlessly with what the filmmaking is doing yeah 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 and that's what i think you know 
Copeland, Scorsese, the greats, you know, do so well. It, you know, Scorsese can play a famous song like Layla, and it feels like Layla was born to be in this movie. Right, right. That's uh, he has really good needle drops, and he doesn't overdo it. And I yeah. think, you know, even then, you think about, you know, when Coppola drops uh, the Doors at the beginning of Apocalypse Now. I mean, that's like yeah, right. Yeah. that song. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like that song was written for that moment. Yeah, it is. That's amazing. I'm sitting here, uh, you know, I'm in Madrid. Yeah, how's it going over there? It's intense. I'm working with Amadovar. That's a dream job, working with him. He's one of my all-time favorites. Tell him that next time. He, this guy, I know, he'll be like... Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's brilliant, and it's fun to be on a set with the true maestro. You know, somebody... You know, you meet a lot of talented people in the world, but you know, they're learning, they're part of their process. But this guy's in his 70s. He's made 10 phenomenal films. It's like playing an instrument in a carefully, meticulously built band. You know, there's certain notes I'm supposed to play and there's certain notes I'm not supposed to play. He's giving you rules and guidelines and stuff. Is that how that works? Yeah, it works like that. But it, like anybody who's good, he's interested if you have something to say on the matter you know, on, on, on my instrument. He's not interested in me talking about somebody else's instrument. It's reminded me a lot of being a kid, you know, when I was a kid and first starting acting and I could just, I was such a good student, you know, I would just do what the director wanted, you know, what, what is it you want? And I'm just going to try to do it. And then as you get older and you get more opinionated, it's good and it's bad. You get experience and you get knowledge and you start to know what you do well and what you can't do well, but you can also lose humility suppleness openness playfulness openness yeah definitely excite excitement and and yeah willing to be the excitement that comes from trying a new idea i i, I fall into that so many times that writing music you just do it over and over and over again and you realize that you've gotten yourself into a tunnel or a trap and you're not really you should be listening more i mean i don't you think that's what i think what everybody why the beatles everybody likes to talk about them nonstop for 50 years or whatever is I, you know, I always like to make this joke, you know, Lady Gaga never had to sing backup for Beyonce. You know, Paul and John had to support each other. And I think it gave them humility. You know, there's John sitting, you know, he's singing backup on Hey Jude, right? Yeah. And it breaks you out of your tunnel because when you get two in your own, I mean, that's what I'm enjoying about working with Pedro. He just, he works a different way. He rehearses a different way. He thinks a different way. And it's forcing me to... um you know, just recalibrate and just be a kid in love with acting again. Yeah, that's awesome. What are you doing now? I'm working on some tunes. I got a record that's finished and I'm making some post-mastering changes to it. It's my new thing, work after the master, which is... Uh, you're not supposed to actually, do that. Actually, I started it. <laughs> no, you're not supposed to do that. Especially when you pay the mastering engineer a godzillion dollars and then you realize you're going to have to pay them again. Uh, but it's starting to cook a little bit recently. So I'm kind of, oh, you're going to be the person I'm, by the way, when I take it to the end of my line, I'm sending it to you and you're going to, I'm, uh, you're going to have to give me a little feedback. All right. Well, you're a big talker because last time we talked was like a month ago. I'm slow. I'm slow. I am slow, but it's going to be worth the wait. Well, it's been so fun to work this hard on this doc and then watch people respond to it. So many music friends have come out of the woodwork and written me to say how much they love the music and that they didn't know that I had done the score until they saw the credits, which I love because they just 
they were liking it without knowing that we were friends or anything like that. Well, it's been, it's fun because I think a lot of it has nothing to do with us and has to do with, I think people have forgot how interesting Paul and Joanne are, you know, and now, and now it's, it's, it was our story to control and manipulate and stuff. And now it just belongs to other people and they can find the movies themselves and find all what interests them. And I, I will say though, like, you know, reading the news every day, when you're away from America, it, it, it gets so unsettling, the lack of integrity in people in positions of power. Um, oh my God. It's just, especially, you know, I mean, we're dads, right? You know, and you you want this this world that these kids are coming into to people to be responsible and ethical and people to tell the truth. And, you know, and it's so nice to focus on two people who really did do their best. It's so, so rare. I think that's what kept sustained me working on it is that, damn, you know, the world does need some decent role models, people who are born with a lot, who did a lot with it, um, yeah. y- you know, and and also had fun. I mean, that's the other key thing. It's like sometimes you, the way the world works is like, you either have to be like deadly serious all the time and this, I don't know, Dudley do right or something, but then you don't have any fun. And one of the things I really like about Paul and Joanne is they seem to have a really great time while they were, they really lived the life. They did. And they were good people. I love when you and I were watching one time and you turned to me and you said, you know, I always love how Paul videotapes his beer. (laughs) Paul is always, he's got the kids, he's got the wife, then he's got a shot of his Budweiser just sitting there. I know. What's funny is nowadays that's no big deal because people do that on Instagram. It's so easy. But back then that film cost money. Burn you know, film, yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn film, your your homemade movie. You got to get developed. These like close up of Miller Highland. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> oh god, that's loose. Um, all right, man. Well, I think I took your. I think I I given you taking everything. Do we have anything else to offer the world? Um, of course we do, but it, it'll come in time. Thanks for listening to the Talkhouse podcast, and thanks to Ethan Hawk and Hamilton Lighthouser for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out The Last Movie Stars on HBO Max. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.